0: Hey everybody, it's Tommy. Welcome to our last interview of 2021. My gosh, we have made it. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Um, this this year was another difficult year and full of transition and change and growth. And I hope it was similar for you. Um, Have a really, really beautiful end of the year conversation. Challenging in some ways Um, and a gift in so many others around the topic of decolonization with my friend Eliana And before we get to the substance of that conversation, um, Eliana is a friend who is um, a friend, a comrade in this justice work. And I just wanted to let you know about some other opportunities that you can have to connect with Eliana um, through her, her business, Embody Inclusivity which will be in the show notes. Um, The first thing is a integrative social justice. Um, uh, It's a program called Thrive, and it's integrating social justice and decolonial practice into business and community. So if you are aspiring to shape how you operate in business, Um, more integrated from a decolonial perspective, and you are black, indigenous, or a person of color, highly recommend that you check that out. And if you're a person of privilege, person deemed white, um, and you want to practice uh, a form of equitable giving, there's also opportunities to engage in helping Offers scholarships for this program as well um, so you can follow the Embody inclusivity link as well um, and then also in a few weeks a new course will be launching talking about multiculturalism and multi uh, racial love how to work with it and and the differences in relationship versus against them, because we know that different experiences can um, really affect how we bond in relationship with one another. So I'm really excited for all of those things. Uh, Eliana is a friend of the pod, and we've been in dreaming of some really awesome um, community engagement, community gathering events, and. Hopefully we can bring you all into that very, very soon. So without further ado, um, our last episode of the season, we are so grateful for you. Thank you for journeying with us to those of you who've been here with us since the beginning. Thank you for sticking with us through all of our evolutions. And yeah, can't wait to see what's next. See you soon.
1: Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all gotta change yes. that. <laughs> yes. What do we do? We, we leave our f-bombs in and. Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're gonna keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to.
2: i out, uh, out of the overflow of oh, the heart, heart, the mouth speaks. that I think out of the overflow of the spirit the body does.
0: Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand so he is getting this question live raw for the very first time.
2: This is um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail.
1: Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it.
2: Unfiltered. I feel like that's got to sound strange. The mission to be. Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, shit. <laughs>
2: Hey, everybody. What's up? Welcome to Permission to Be. Um, We are so excited to be with you tonight. We have in-house a friend of the pod. First time here. You finally get to know her. The one, the only. Constanza, Eliana, Shania. (laughs) How are you, my friend? Yay! Yay!
3: am I on TV
2: <laughs> I mean I feel like we've been kikiing like we are yeah like all of it should have been recorded it would have been just joy for the audience
3: <laughs> joy yes thank you for having me this is great
2: oh yay <laughs> so um I I call you Eliana mm-hmm. most most often but you go by both um yeah you are an activist, a speaker, a uh, decolonizing, uh, decolonized, educate, decolonial educator. Let me get my words right. <laughs> um, pronouns, she, her. Um, how you doing?
3: I'm good. Good. I am, I was just telling y'all that there was a, um, for the, like the first time in 20 years, there was a thunderstorm in Los Angeles. So. We were just, yeah, we were just enjoying the five minutes of rain and thunder. (laughs)
2: Like, there has to be some significant meaning when it rains in the desert. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah there has to be right it's like a, a detox <laughs> the liberal detox over here
1: <laughs> oh,
3: shit. west coast liberal detox
1: <laughs>
2: oh, so we're going there to, we're going there early cool. <laughs> definitely um, we also have Olivia and Becca with us tonight um Hello, friends. You know, you know. Hello. I'm feeling pretty goofy. So it's just going <laughs> to we on a kiki, you know. we on a kiki.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so have we had any conversations on decolonization on the podcast?
1: Explicitly? Not like just outright, I don't think. Oh. Oh. Like we had like little pockets.
2: Yeah. You know, we talked to our friend Caitlin Curtis. And that was sort of an entry point, but maybe we can dig a little deeper tonight. Mm -hmm. Um, So give the audience a little, not a little, Mm -hmm. um, I, I love in the last episode, I was just editing. I was like, take, take some space to tell us who you are um and contextualize yourself how you want us to experience you today.
3: Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um who I am? I mean, I am jeez, I'm all sorts of things. I was actually kind of taking inventory of my life <laughs> recently as one does in a crisis. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, I really have done lots and lots of things in 34 years. It's pretty, um, it's pretty fantastic. So, um, my family is from Puerto Rico. Uh, that is the colonial name. The decolonial name is Borinquen. And, um, so my, both of my, uh, both sides of my family um, have been on the island for 400 years. Um, that's as far as, back as we can trace it. So um, yeah, so it's uh, you know, a long lineage, ancestral lineage of uh, three different cultures, um, but that you know, merged into one very proud nation. Um, So I have that as my background. And I moved to the United States when I was about eight years old. So English is my second language. Um, American culture was not my first culture. So it was you know, a little bit of a culture shock when I moved to the United States. And, uh, I like to joke around that Sesame street taught me everything I know.
4: <laughs> Cause you know,
3: the, the TV is the babysitter and you're trying to learn English for the first time and understand everything. So, you know, PBS was everything.
2: <laughs> yeah. I still say I'd do a great Elmo impression.
3: Uh, my, mine was big bird, big bird.
2: Oh,
3: big bird was my guy. Um, So, yeah, so I, um, you know, I had somewhat of an immigrant experience, you know, a lot of people don't think that Puerto Ricans are immigrants just because of the colonial status and the uh, territory um, status. But, you know, it's it's a totally different culture. We still have kept, um, you know, our culture 100 percent. We're not Americans and we don't consider ourselves to be Americans for the most part unless you're a state hooder, that's a totally different conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was different. It was real different. So, um, I went through my assimilation process in my very young years. Um, and when I, you know, hit high school, I had, when I, we first moved to the United States, um, I had moved to the Midwest. So when I went to high school, I was actually in the South, I was in Texas. So I, You know, my introduction to American culture was very white, very middle America. And it wasn't until I moved down to Texas that I was, again, surrounded by brown and black folks, uh, a lot of Mexicans, a lot of Dominicans, a lot of Puerto Ricans. So I uh, love that time period of my life because I really got to reclaim a lot of the culture that I was completely embarrassed about in middle America. and you know that kind of uh, kick-started my movement back towards wh- who do I actually want to be versus what this society wants me to be, and what do I stand for? What do I want in this life? Um, how do I want to take up space in this society? And um, you know, through college, I started getting into animal rights and liberation activism, and then social justice, and Um, after Philando Castile got murdered by the police, I really went deep into the Black Lives Matter movement and, um, you know, Puerto Rican independence and just more social justice related things. So that's kind of like a a, a synopsis of how I got here (laughs) to the decolonial education space. Um, I was a yoga teacher for many many years i practiced yoga for 11 years i was teaching for about eight or nine of those years Um, and i experienced for the first time you know what it was like to be in an industry that really does love to spiritually bypass race and racism and systemic injustice like it they totally wanted to divorce the two i think now it's a little bit different Now we're having a lot of those conversations about merging social justice and wellness. But when I first started, um, that was not the case. It was a lot of, we only practice toxic positivity here, toxic spirituality, you can't bring your politics in here. You can't bring social justice in here.
2: Yeah, I was gonna ask you like, what does spiritual bypassing in in that sense or in that space look like?
3: I mean, uh, from everything from we're all one race, we're all one, we don't talk about race, we don't talk about racism, we don't believe in racism, um, all the way to you know, experience severe prejudice inside of yoga studios. Uh, I was really looked at as the help just because I'm Latina, I'm brown, I don't look white and have never passed for white, Um, Most of the time I passed for Middle Eastern and so I was getting a lot of prejudice and racism inside of the yoga studio space. At the same time everyone was saying we're all one, we're all equal. I was experiencing the complete opposite. Um, And so yeah, it was a rough, rough space to be in. Um, there's also just a ton of cultural appropriation as a lot of South um, Asians know. And so it was just really tough. And, and a lot of, I, I have to say, I did drink a lot of the Kool-Aid when I first got into the yoga space. I was totally adamant that I was practicing authentic yoga, that, you know, we were all one, that I could embrace that, you know, type of mentality, but it was one of those things where it's like, you're telling me one thing, but you're showing me another. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't, I I just couldn't like really see how my experience inside the studio was any different than
4: my experience outside of the studio.
3: So it was tough. And the, I think that experience actually helped me to get back into social justice in a really deep and meaningful way in a way that felt like I could contribute to a conversation that was really desperately needed that many people did not want to have. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's been a long road.
2: (laughs) So interesting when we take inventory um, and, like, recognize like what brings us to to the present moments of our work and in our activism. Um, so what was what was the experience like growing up sort of being socialized one way in Puerto Rico? Mm-hmm. Um, moving to the Midwest where we know, like demographically is not super diverse if you're outside of mm-hmm. Chicago.
1: <laughs>
3: right, right.
2: <laughs> and not to say like the Midwest is a pretty expansive area, but Illinois is where you were. Where That's you went, where I so. was.
3: Yeah. That's where I landed. Um, <clears throat> Yeah. You know, it's interesting because as I learn more about colorism and anti-blackness and unpacking all of those things, I really realized how much of a privilege it was to be a brown child in Puerto Rico, where I kind of just, quote unquote, blended in to the crowd and I didn't experience um, racism, like structural racism when i moved to the united states it was a drastically different experience now all of a sudden i had to take a look at my skin color my hair texture you know the way that i spoke the type of food that i ate the accent in my speech like all of a sudden all of these things were bad and so <clears throat> i've really in my adulthood have learned to unpack what that experience is and also like the immigrant experience but how different it is for, you know, darker skinned folks, black folks who are Puerto Rican, who are boricua, um, who had to learn all of that much earlier than I did at eight years old. So I wanna give that as context, but yeah, it was it was a huge shock. I mean, I remember the first time that I, you know, started to learn English. I had a very young um white blonde-eyed blue uh blue or sorry blue-eyed blonde-haired you know teacher who i'm sure had the best intentions but was like you know she was my introduction to the english language to the english culture and she really hammered it in like you have to pronounce these words correctly and you have to spell them like this and you have to say it like that and it just it was interesting it was a very interesting experience um the first time I got bullied was over um, my food. So I was bringing very cultural food for lunch to school. Mm. And that was the first time I got bullied was for the smell of the food. I think it was like something very simple, like arroz con and people were just like, ew, totally grossed out, didn't know what it was. Everybody else had Lunchables. <laughs> you know, like super toxic food, and I'm walking in with <laughs> like, Super smelly got homemade food. I know. <laughs> right? Nowadays, everyone would want my food, but back then it was like you don't have Lunchables or Gushers or Skittles or all of the stuff. Like you're gross. Get away from us, right? So, it was that. I also remember like um, I didn't quite understand dress code. Like, that was also something very new to me. In Puerto Rico, we always wore, at the academy, we always wore, um, like, very traditional, like, school uniforms. And when I moved to the United States, that wasn't a thing, right? And so I didn't understand dress code. I didn't understand the weather conditions. I I didn't even know what snow looked like. So I remember coming into school and also getting bullied for, like, not wearing a jacket when it was cold outside or wearing dresses when everybody was wearing like pants and a sweater, um, or wearing sandals when everybody else was wearing boots. Like it was just a very different, um, Mm. type of experience. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I have remembered now that I didn't remember for a really long time, because I think I was so traumatized by moving to the United States and having that experience, not speaking the language, not understanding my peers not understand like knowing people were making fun of me but not understanding what they were saying so um yeah it was i think for a long time i really shut out that part of my life and it's been in my adulthood that i've really unpacked it and try to make sense of it right try to make sense of what did this little girl experience that has followed her to this day Mm -hmm. and how do i continue to try to heal her as i manage all of these other like very adult things um, <clears throat> so yeah, a lot of my assimilation, uh, consisted of internalized inferiority. It consisted of even, you know, demonizing some of some people from my own culture, the uh, people who kept their accents versus me. I did not keep my accent. Um, at, for a long time I thought, you know, ugh, why do they like, why didn't they, you know, lose that accent? Like, don't they know that they're gonna face discrimination? Don't they want a better life for themselves? Like, that was really a thought process that I had for a long time because that's what I was taught. Um, I straightened my hair all throughout my life until about five years ago. Um, I, you know, was very into the beauty industry and like very white colonial beauty standards. Um, mm-hmm. I was a makeup artist before I was uh, a yoga teacher and, you know, the beauty industry really hammers it in that you have to have very European features in order to succeed. And so, you know, that's that's the life that I was subscribing to and and didn't realize that a lot of the depression and anxiety that I was picking up along the way and, you know, substance abuse. I was an alcoholic for a really long time. I didn't realize that all of those things were due to those experiences. Um, And I I don't think a lot of, you know, Boricuas in general who live in the diaspora, or, you know, children of immigrants or people of color, really know that a lot of the issues that we face have so much to do with the systemic racism and xenophobia that we experience on a daily basis. It's very normal for us. So much so that a lot of times we don't even We don't even recognize that something is racist until we start to unpack it later. Um, Unless it's like very blatantly violent and in your face, right? So much of the racism that we experience is subtle, it's normalized, and it's accepted.
2: There's so many layers like just stacking yeah. up there that that you detail beautifully and we could go in any number of directions I think like <laughs> 30.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: Um so how does that those experiences then relate to the work of decolonization as opposed to say something like anti-racism
3: yeah it's a good question and a lot of people have you know that question as well Is like what is the difference is there is there anything that um makes one better than the other or anything like that and i would say no they're both equally as important one is just a slightly step further than the other one so i would say anti-racism is very much focused on dismantling the structure and the mentality of race um, and the myth of race and unpacking all of that and the experience of race and racism Um, versus decolonization at least it should, I don't know if every decolonial educator is this way, but it should have a foundation in anti-racism with the understanding that it's colonization, that perpetuates oppression, so it continues it. So decolonization aims to be anti-racist at its core, but understands that racism isn't the only form of oppression that needs to be dismantled. There's also all of these other colonial structures that need to be dismantled in order to get to the collective liberation that we're all, you know, hopefully seeking. Um, So decolonization is really more so dismantling the mentality, the the colonial mentality, um, and ideologies that create the structure of colonization. Um, And colonization isn't just a government colonizing a territory or um, a country or even a people. Colonization continues to this day by way of economics, by way of race, by way of um, capitalism. So there's a lot that goes into it that most people aren't even aware of. So, you know, anybody who says we're living in a post-colonial society is full of shit. Um, (laughs) Uh. It's just, it's not a thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Can you say more about the ways, you know, I think that what we recognize, especially, as we've been on our own journey through anti-racism and faith deconstruction that at some, at some points we're taught these really like not even foundational things, but like simplified history. Mm -hmm. So when you say that decolonization is economics and these other things, can you, unpack what you mean more, Mm -hmm. um, in that way, because I would have, I I would probably make this, I feel like I would be safe to make the assumption that people probably generally think like the act of colonizing nations and territories is over in 2021.
3: Right. Yeah. And a lot of people think that's true, right? A lot of people will Mm -hmm. make the argument, for example, that Puerto Rico is not a colony that it is just an extension of the United States because it's there's no longer a war, right? The war already happened, and now you know papers were signed, and Puerto Rico now belongs to the United States, so it's no longer no longer colonial. So um, both of those things are false, right? Like on paper, Puerto Rico is a colonized territory; it is not a sovereign nation. Um, and it was actually purchased from the Spanish through the Treaty of Paris. So there's a lot of facts <laughs> that go around that. But, you know, besides that, I think the there's so much Western supremacy and Western ideology that uh-huh. <laughs> has really like seeped into people's mindsets that any anything that belongs to the United States is not colonized, and that also is not true. Alaska and Hawaii are—I consider them colonial territories, even though they, on paper, are states. Um, both of those nations were also stolen from Native people, and I would say all of America is still stolen. Um, mm-hmm. None of it, you know, was ever given back to um, Native tribes that. you know, Mm -hmm. it rightfully belongs to them. And so um, this idea that, you know, the United States is no longer a colonial imperialist state is just false. Um, Just because we're not at war doesn't mean that it's not colonial still. Um, So decolonization in, in its, you know, foundation is really about mindset and ideology. So it's like deconstructing the mindset and ideology behind colonization, and what that means and what it does to people, and how people act based on that colonial mindset. So France Fanon is somebody that I, you know, am, have been studying for a couple of years, and he really breaks down colonial mentality, like all the way down to its foundation. So he's somebody that I really look up to in that sense. Um, so I've really learned the differences between a person of color um, decolonizing versus a white person who is unsettling. So they're they're both the same, but slightly different in their approaches, um, which is a, a, a conversation that not too many people are having, right? We, we think of decolonization as like this trendy buzzword that everybody has now um, somewhat subscribed to, but not... Realizing that there are two very different approaches. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so
2: d- for a person to, I'm sorry, I keep asking all the questions. Go y'all. Ahead. Feel free to tell me to shut up or no, bounce me off at no. any point. No. But th- so what immediately popped up for for me is. um when i hear unsettling i'm like and i think about settler yeah. colonialism does that is that is that the saying y'all need to get your asses up on out of here
1: <laughs> like
2: what's the what does that mean unsettling and decolon versus decolonizing yeah. why is it crafted into those categories yeah
3: it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think that's the normal response that most people have is like, Oh, you just want me to leave. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's half true. Yes, we would like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. especially if you are currently gentrifying an entire group of, you know, people and nation, but <laughs> let's put that aside for now. That's not technically what we're talking about. So The the main thing with decolonization is that colonialism is is really meant to be against people of color. So we're not colonizing European countries. We're not colonizing the Netherlands. We're not colonizing you know countries that are deemed quote unquote white nations. Most Mm -hmm. of what has been colonized are you know the African continent, the Caribbean. Um, Central and South America, Guam, um, you know most North of the America. Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're we're colonizing, or not we are colonizing, but the the idea behind colonization was to basically expand the British Empire, right? The American mm-hmm, Empire, yep. and so although other nations have had uh, colonization prior to European colonization. Most of the colonial territories actually belong to the British Empire. So Britain is um, estimated to have colonized uh, like 90 percent of the world. Um, That's an estimate, but it's not wildly off. It's like literally Mm 90 percent. So um, we're talking about some very real, violent stuff, right? And yeah, uh, I was
2: just going to say let's pause and like really break down mm
3: -hmm.
2: what is entailed in colon in in, in this act of colonizing, Mm -hmm. because it is this movement of people, um, and people bring. Things with them, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, like, let's let's just kind of unpeel that back a little bit,
3: right? Yeah, I think you know sometimes the the decolonial movement and the unsettling movement get a little bit of pushback because you know, for instance, like um, Asian countries uh, had colonization that d- existed. You know, outside of European imperialism, and that is true. You know, we had Japan and China colonize Korea and all of these other you know nations, and they went through their own decolonial attempts. Um, so it's not to dismiss that, but it's to say that because the British Empire um, decided to very violently colonize nearly the entire world, um, that has implications and consequences that still live to this day. So. I always like to um, kind of concise it a little bit down to my personal experience, being with, uh, from Puerto Rico and, uh, and being Boricua, that I can tangibly see. So if you go to Puerto Rico, you're gonna see a whole host of American or European owned hotels, right? Puerto Rico yeah. has really become a tourism country, um, tourism nation, not by choice, but forced. Because it is seen and most, most of the Caribbean, most Central and South American countries are, are seen as the playground for the rich white um, folks who, you know, want to be around the tropics, right? They want to have the beaches, they want to um, have their extra vacation homes in um, predominantly brown and black countries, um, because they deem it as their playground, right? They think that it belongs to them. And so a lot of my nation has really become a tourist uh, nation. And one of the main reasons it's become that is not just because it's you know the colonial playground of, of the, the um, you know, Western supremacist world. It's a lot of it is because the um, US imperialism has crushed the economy so much so that we are really dependent on our colonizer. We really depend on the United States government to bail us out of things um, for our food. They have restricted our uh, agriculture all the way down um, so that we're really dependent on having food shipped to us. Even Mm. the food that is grown on the island has to be resold to the island so it's actually two times to sometimes four times more expensive than it is for the united states
2: holy shit
3: because of
2: say that that again say that again
3: (laughs) so because of u.s imperialism even food that is grown on the island has to be resold to the island so any milk for instance or cheese that is actually made in Puerto Rico is technically part of the United States, that is a a United States um, product. So the United States sells it back to Puerto Rico even though it's a Puerto Rican product, it is sold back to us at two to sometimes four times the rate. So milk, that would be $2.50 in the US, that is actually made in Puerto Rico would be $4.50 in Puerto Rico. So it is wild. (laughs) The level- That is
4: fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I'm sitting here having my mind completely blown. Like, this is a thing that is happening in 2021. Mm -hmm. Wow. And,
3: And has been happening since the 1920s. So that is, a, um, that is the Jones Act that was passed in the 1920s, that was really built out of racism and says that anything that is shipped to a US territory is technically part of the United States. So even if it's shipped out or to, it is part of the United States. So the fees go up and Let's pretend for a second that Puerto Rico and the United States have just gone to war and Puerto Rico has just won its independence. Because of the 1920 Jones Act, Puerto Rico would still not be able to have food shipped to it because of the Jones Act. So people would literally be going hungry unless other world powers decided to not sanction Puerto Rico as now a sovereign nation and have food delivered to them. So this has created a very colonial structure where again, where Puerto Rico is dependent on its colonizer for its survival. So this is modern day colonization. We're not talking war, we're not talking, you know, continuing to steal territory, land and resources. We're talking making an entire nation dependent on the very people who stole their sovereignty from them so that they don't even seek sovereignty to begin with. That is colonization.
1: enslavement.
4: Yes. That, that just brings to mind something that I just learned last week, um, which was about the um, revolution in Haiti um, mm-hmm. and what happened when they won their um, freedom from France. Yes. And then were expected that they were no longer a slave colony um, and right. slaves were an asset. And then, so I have fought, bled, died to win my freedom. And now they were charged for their free because as as a lost asset <laughs> yeah. and and it was just another one of those things that i, I when I, I i heard it um a uh, uh, a person that i follow who teaches a lot of, does a lot of history videos was talking about it And she's never shared anything that was not historically accurate, but I just had to go look it up for myself because it just blew my mind the way um, people here talk about, um, you know, reparations is so demonized, but yet, Mm -hmm. and still here you've got a people who have been enslaved to win their freedom. And then the people who enslaved them want to levy a financial, a financial consequence for the fact that I no longer own you.
0: Um, Right.
4: And and that's this sounds about that ridiculous. That the, the thing is is that with Haiti, this was hundreds of years ago, and so to to sit here now and hear you tell me that oh, this is twenty twenty one, yeah. I, I'm, I'm just I, I'm speechless. Yeah, thank you for and educating us.
3: <laughs> of course, and <laughs> and I love that you brought up Haiti because and and I would say Haiti, um, because it's. We should really be looking to Haiti as like the standard of revolution and st- the standard of seeking sovereignty, but they that entire nation has been so demonized and so um, that the conversation around it is so anti-black that even Caribbean folks don't even understand how incredible it was that Haiti is a sovereign nation and what it took to get there, and I think it's done on purpose because. If the rest of the Caribbean really embraced that type of revolutionary um, strategy, it would mean that the United States would have no territories and they do not want that. They want to keep their playground. They want to keep us oppressed. And so there's that aspect of it. And then there's also the anti-blackness aspect of it. right? Haiti is still seen as, you know, a very poor country, third world country, like who would want to live there? Who would want to be like them? And that is also on purpose, because just, you know, Puerto Rico is one example. But Haiti, even though it is a sovereign nation, it has been kept poor on purpose because of the reparations, in quotes, that they have had to pay to France for their freedom. But also because of U.S. imperialism not wanting Haiti to also be the sovereign nation that it should be by way of truly uh, being allowed to do trade, truly being allowed to have its own economics, um, its own politics. U.S. imperialism is not just about you know capitalism. U.S. imperialism has a lot to do with the U.S. government dictating the politics of every other country surrounding it. Central America, Mm -hmm. South America, the Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, Cuba. Look at what the U.S. has done to Cuba, you know, like it's it's just so insidious. And that's the colonization that I'm talking about. So you don't have to be a U.S. territory to be colonized by U.S. imperialist powers. Um, so I love that you brought in Haiti because we really should be looking to them as the standard. We should be emulating mm. everything that they did. But we are not even taught about IT properly because of, you know, US imperialism and anti-blackness.
2: <sighs> <laughs> Just gotta catch my breath, y'all. <laughs> so I'm just going to go down that natural trajectory. If we're having a conversation about decolonization and colonization, I feel like we can't um, not address violence Mm -hmm. within that equation. Mm -hmm. And Fanon Mm -hmm. um, really crafts a a psychoanalytic analysis around this that I'm just beginning to study. Yeah. But first of all, when we think like when when you're having do you do you is there how do you broach the conversation surrounding violence and why is violence even a necessary conversation as it relates to decolonization? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the subject that no one wants to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And you're actually the first person to really ask me that in a genuine way. Um, I think a lot of people just kind of like, they, they like to dance around the subject, they don't even touch the subject, right? And I think it's an important one. So, you know, I think it's nuanced, I think there's a lot of privilege to living in the diaspora. So I, I, You know, can speak freely about these things um, and, you know, I'm not necessarily affected on a day to day basis by all of the oppression that, you know, people like all of my family members do on the island. Right. So there is a level of privilege that I have um, that is very different from the natives who are still living there. Um,
2: yeah, and just for the audience, when you say the diaspora, what are for you? What are you yeah. referencing? Yeah,
3: so I can break it down. So currently in Puerto Rico, there, um, or sorry, currently, as it relates to people who identify as Puerto Rican, it's about um, two thirds of the population actually live outside of the island. So in the United States, in particular, there's around four million i want to say give or take four million puerto ricans living in the united states just the united states alone versus the three million that are currently on the island so there are more mm. living in the diaspora than there are on the actual island. and again all of that is due to colonization there is no opportunity to uh, work unless you are a doctor barely or a teacher maybe um, or you are a government official, or, you know, you have some ties to the island, right? For the most part, you're not going to be able to find a job outside of working for a hotel, again, done on purpose. Um, and so you have to find opportunities elsewhere. Even my father, who was a professor all of his career, uh you know, couldn't find a job as a professor on the island, so he had to find it outside of the island, and that's why we ended up moving to the United States. Um, that's what I mean by the diaspora. There's actually more Puerto Ricans outside of the island than there are on it. So the conversation around decolonization mostly these days revolves around just the mentality of it. How much mm-hmm. how much colonial mindset do we uh, have? We internalized mostly as people of color, because that's who colonization affects the most. Um, but also, how does settler colonialism you know, operate and how can we move outside of that? There's actually a really important conversation that I'm hoping people are really starting to get into, which is the, you know, the difference between an immigrant and an expat. I think expats are just rebranded immigrants. But because it's such a Western thing, like an expat is like a Western thing, right? You live in the United States and now you're an expat because you decide to move out of the United States versus an immigrant who's coming into a European nation or a Western nation like the United States. Right. So there's there's something about that that is very colonial, even if you're a person of color that has been internalized to where, oh, no, 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 I'm not an immigrant. I'm an expat. (laughs) <laughs> there's really no difference, right? You're still immigrating. Um, and it has a lot, of, you know, for people of color, it has a lot to do with the racism and the systemic oppression that we're facing inside of the United States. But we don't want to be seen as the dirty word of immigrant, right? Because we, mm. we know what those connotations yeah. mean. So there's like almost like a rebranding, which is very colonial, which a lot of people don't want to touch, right? It's, it's you know, it's, mm. a, it's like the the don't talk about this term, right? But that that is very violent to people, you know, like myself, who have not been able to move back to their island because the island is being gentrified by Europeans and Americans of all different races and and uh, identities. Um, The land is being bought out. We're not able to move back. The opportunities still aren't there. Americans are working there because they are able to work from home. So they're not even giving back to the economy, the Puerto Rican economy, and that continues the cycle of colonization. There's a lot of tech companies. Um, There was a viral video that came out recently where it was supposed to be like some sort of town hall between the native Puerto Ricans in that town and a tech company that was coming in Pretending that it was going to give opportunities to um, the natives, and all they ended up doing was hiring more Americans to come in and work for the company, to move to um, to move to the island, buying up houses at jacked up prices, renovating them, pricing the natives out. So, and and the people who owned this tech company were actually people of color. So. It's this colonial mindset that continues to shift. And just because you're from the West doesn't mean you're not still perpetuating a lot of mm. the same colonial standards that you have been taught in the West. Um, yeah. so the there's a level of violence there that needs to be talked about. But then there's also just straight up violence, right? Revolution right. is violence.
2: so let's let's like define violence, though. like when we're when we're when we're talking about violence, what are? How would we even define that to begin with?
3: Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, I think it is violent. Gentrification is violent. Mm -hmm. It is creating a level of trauma that may not be, you know, so in your face, visceral, where somebody is literally being removed from their home in front of a television crew or media crew, crying, you know, all of those things. Just because we don't see that doesn't mean that gentrification itself isn't violent. People are being priced out of their homes. People who have been wanting to move back home because of, you know, Hurricane Maria, which happened about five or six years ago by now, um, uh, environmental racism because of opportun- lack of opportunities. People who want to move back can't. That is very violent to re- to ha- to force a people to move out of their homes into a culture that they don't necessarily understand, that doesn't want them there, and then mm-hmm. to revoke their right to move back because you are now continuing to buy their land, buy their land, jack up the prices, and mm. you know continue uh, yeah. oppression. That is violence,
2: right? Right. And that's the key that when you said the force part is the the thing that I want it to really Mm -hmm. like sink our teeth in on because it's very much like people get called racist and they have this visceral reaction to it, but it's just a descriptor Right. that violence is just this descriptor that articulates how something happens and with what force or the effect of that force on that thing happening. Yeah. And so we can, we can talk about violence in a number of ways and violence is more prevalent around us than we give credence to, mm-hmm. um, but we generally only contextualize it in a very specific way.
3: Right, people think violence, mm. ha- in order to qualify as violence, it has to be explicit, but a lot of times violence is very implicit. And it's very covert because if the United States truly showed you how its imperialist ways were enacted, you would never want to be a part of the United States, right? Like it, it would be so incredibly traumatizing just to you as a citizen that you wouldn't even want to be a part of that, right? Some of us don't have a choice, <laughs> but for <to laughs> those of you who do have a choice, you may not want to be a part of that anymore because you I see it if it was explicit all the time. Right. Um, but most of the time it is not only 1% of the time do you actually see it being very explicitly done.
2: Mm. Yeah. And so being, I, I think Fanon's position is that because the, the force, the mentality, the mindset, the actions, the practice mm-hmm. of colonization of of taking body and self and weapons to another and forcibly removing, erasing their languages done under such violent conditions, the act of decolonizing our minds, ourselves, our bodies, and unsettling ourselves will be equally violent. How do we hold those...
1: Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something I'm exploring in real time, um, because I, I think so much of this work is so internal. It's, uh, it's a lot of unlearning, a lot of realizing, a lot of unpacking, a lot of unlearning, and a lot of acknowledging. Um, and that can feel really traumatic in itself, right? You have this trauma mm-hmm. of forced assimilation, of forced colonization, and now, yeah. you know, it feels very traumatic to have to learn that all of these things have happened to you and try to contextualize that and process it. And then also unlearning it because you too have perpetuated some colonial shit. And so, mm-hmm. how do you yes. reconcile that as an oppressed oppressor? So it becomes like a very weird you know, space all of a sudden. So in real time, that's what I'm, you know, currently processing. And a lot of times I'm very overwhelmed. Most of the time I have to like really recommit to this work because it can feel very, very heavy. And, you know, it's a it's a good question. Like how do you process the fact that, you know, all of it is violent, right? The, the process of unsettling and decolonizing is violent, right? Like it is, it is a force Uh, You almost have to force yourself to keep on learning (laughs) because so much Mm. of the colonial mentality has been normalized. It's like a part of everyday life. Um, And, you know, very similar to anti-racist work. A lot of people don't want to do it because it means that they would have to radically shift the way that they operate, not only relationally, but also business wise, Um, how you earn your money has to shift the way that you engage with community has to shift the way that you look at other nations politics has to shift so it you know it can be really ah. <laughs> um, yeah. in your face <laughs> so you know i what i always say is that it's a lot easier to stay with the devil you know
1: mm.
3: than to try and like go through the darkness and try to learn something new fault people who start the decolonial learning and then decide nope can't do that anymore because it's traumatizing me I'm upset all the time I can't I feel like I can't have fun (laughs) you know like the things that I used to like I can't like anymore because it's colonial like how do I you know do this thing right so I don't ever fault anybody who goes through that at the same time though I think that it's important to understand where you fall in this conversation and in this mm. um, where where you fall as far as wanting liberation and really seeking it out. Because it's one thing to to know that you're oppressed and not do anything about it because it's the devil you know versus to know that you're oppressed and actively seek out liberation. And liberation is hard. Like, what does it look like to be free? Most of us don't know. Most of us haven't seen it. Our ancestors would look at us and say, oh, you're definitely free. But we know that oppression still exists and it looks very different for us. And so I think it's, it's a constant um, processing of where do I want to be? How much does liberation actually mean to me? And how can it look like in this colonial space? And what is my positionality within the decolonial um, part of it? Because it's going it, to in order to decolonize anything, it's gonna take a large group of people. Hmm. So yeah. it's—it's a—it's a tough conversation, and I don't have all the answers. But that's what I love about decolonization: is that I constantly get to seek the answers that I'm looking for, and it requires collective discussion.
2: Yeah. I I love that. And it was when you were, when you made that analogy about the devil that, you know, it made me think about recently quitting my job, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and the emotions and the trauma that came up with that in this decision that I had to make, I reached a certain point, um, And I actually had to get a therapist and process this through with. And one of the things that she was saying, whenever we set ourselves toward a new pattern that hasn't been charted before, that we don't have any reference point, Mm -hmm. our body is going to receive that as danger and send off the alarm bells because we're having to create new pathways in our brain mm-hmm. of something that we've never done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that we haven't talked about with you today and that you alluded to at the beginning is sort of uh, not, I always say sort of <laughs> one of the things that you did allude to was the struggle that all these forces, colonization, assimilation, um, has subconsciously on your mental health Mm -hmm. and so many of us arrive at this work from that perspective of some sort of faith or spiritual deconstruction and integrating that for me with what I believe as like to be you know wholly human is to connect this mind body and the spirit thing that we, we can't articulate, but we know needs some sort of care. What has that looked like for you in your decolon uh, de, uh, decolonial framework?
3: Mm-hmm. Messy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it looks very messy. Um, yeah, it's been tough. I think you know if I if I really had to take a look at my life and see. You know, when my depression started, which really was very young, probably around the time that I started to move to the United States and go through, um, you know, that culture shock and how I handled it then was to get closer to that colonial standard. It was to get closer towards whiteness, closer towards that Mm. uh, not American, but, you know, Western supremacist
2: American dream. dream You
1: know, the
3: West is, you know, our savior and they can do no wrong. And, you know, you can be rich here. You can make it here. You can do all the things here. Right. It was to get really, really close to that, as close to that as I could. And at the same time, what I wasn't realizing is that it was making me suffer even more because I was never going to hit that standard. It was never going to happen for me, not in the way that they created it, because they don't want me to get there. Right. They don't want Mm -hmm. us to get there, people of color to get there. Um, So it's like dangling the carrot and constantly chasing it. But you never quite get the carrot. Right. That's that's what the U.S. uh, does to us. And so. I didn't realize that it was making me suffer more which actually made me hit the bottle and you know go through that whole process and so versus now where i'm i'm going through this what feels like very traumatic unlearning processing how am i gonna you know continue to do activism how am i going to continue to move in this world Um, you know, capitalism exists and it's a thing and how do I, you know, exist in the structure and not wanting to be a part of the structure, like all of these things create a lot of overwhelm and it becomes very messy to try to, uh, to try to go through the, the mental gymnastics that you're constantly going through and how I've, you know, dealt with it now, honestly, hasn't been too far off from what I did before, which is again, Clinging to whatever colonial thing I knew existed, which, you know, uh, for me is not the bottle anymore. I've been sober for, you know, seven or eight years, maybe longer. But it does still look like wanting to cling to the cure, right? Like wanting to Mm. cling to, you know, for a while it was medication. So wanting to cling to medication to like relieve me of all of this sadness, relieve me of all of this grief. Um, and actually, you know, the conversation around grief for people of color, there is a book called Racial Melancholia. If you've never heard of it, I would highly suggest it. It is an incredible, incredible theory um, created by an Asian author and educator. And he basically, racial melancholia is this grieving of something that you can't, you, you, you haven't quite ever touched or felt or seen, but you know that it's there. It's like a loss Mm. of culture a loss of identity um because it's constantly being stripped away from you at the same time you don't you're not white so you're never gonna be white you're never gonna you know be a part of that uh structure that racial you know structure um and so it creates this level of grief that is untangible you can't really see it but you feel it all of the time it's a he's a fantastic author and he explains it you know really really well so I would definitely um, say to google that but you know it's it's not too far off and so what I've realized is that because colonization is all that we know our first step is to get a little bit closer to it but in the decolonial process you get closer to it you examine it you notice it you become more aware of it quicker so then you can take a step back and decide okay I need to, it's not working and it's never going to work. So I need to try something else. I need to get closer to community. I need to get closer to some mutual aid. I need to reach out for help. I need to destigmatize mental health because that's a thing. Um, And the, the wanting and reaching, at least for me personally, the wanting and reaching for substances, that outside thing that's gonna make me on the inside feel better and happier about my existence in this fucked up world, that wanting to cling to that, again, is a very colonial concept because our ancestors, our indigenous ancestors, didn't have that, right? They didn't have outside things to make them feel better. They All they had was themselves and their environment and they had to make that work. And so, um, you know, it, it's that re, um, a friend of mine calls it re indigenizing ourselves.
2: Mm. And like, I've heard a similar Dr. Greg Carr, um, he puts emphasis on remembering. Yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I love that. And I'm constantly thinking about that like, how can I re indigenize the way that I treat my mental health? The way that i treat my body the way that i treat my relationships um and it's messy it's freaking messy and it, i don't do it correctly all the time or correctly whatever that is but
1: right, <laughs> is that, right, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that perfectionism, <laughs> perfectionism
3: concept. right like oh you have to do it right or wrong and you know it, i, I yeah. don't always do it in a way that feels aligned i should say mm. and but the great thing about it is that the more, the deeper I get into this work, yes, the more I'm unpacking and the more uncomfortable I get, but also I feel like I'm getting closer to the thing that I'm looking for that is way further away than again, the devil that I know that, and it feels more aligned. So every day I'm getting closer and closer to the thing that is actually going to make me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm actually me and it's okay to be me. It's. I don't have to strive for anything. I don't have to prove anything. That is hard in social media. (laughs) Social media world.
2: It's it's programmed.
3: It is so programmed. To
2: do just that. Exactly.
3: (laughs) And to compare yourself and to constantly be out there, constantly be seen. Look at all the things I'm doing. Look at all the things I'm teaching you, right? That it's hard, right? And, and especially when people look at you as an educator and that's what you do, that's what you love to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of a sudden you're not teaching or you're taking a break. Um, it can be really difficult, right? To remember who you are, that in your essence, you're not here for anybody else. You're here for you. You're here for dismantling. You're here for disrupting colonial systems. Um, But that doesn't have to be on anybody's timeline. Um, Yeah, it's messy work.
1: (laughs) I guess let's bring it around... Well, can I say one thing? Yes, absolutely, please. What you say when what you're looking for is very individualized to or unique, not individualized, wrong word, (laughs) unique to you. Yeah. And unique to Tommy, because I I feel like another aspect of supremacy, culture and capitalism is the thing we're looking for is all the same. We're looking for the same thing, you know, and so this journey, you know, I just wanted to. Talk about if you can say just a little bit about that, because I think assumption our brains, not everybody, but a lot of the assumptions our brains go to is we're looking for that thing, Mm -hmm. the same thing. Mm, Right. That's good. That's good.
3: Yeah. And okay so there's the thing of that exists that is very real. And it's this concept of individualism, right? Mm -hmm. It's all, you know, everything that happens happens to me. And it's only important because it's my experience, right? That's mm-hmm. individualism. And that is very toxic. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't studied it too much, but my guess is that, a, you know, that individualism is actually what fed racism mm-hmm. um, and, and imperialism and capitalism and all yeah, that stuff. So yeah. there is that. And that's the extreme of it, right? But you're right, mm-hmm. there's, there is this level of, you know, we all want the same thing, right? And it, and we all have to get there the same way. And it's interesting, because I I have a, um, a mentorship program that I offer to uh, people of color who are in wellness who are wanting to decolonize. And one of the biggest, uncomfortable things that they tell me is that I'm not giving them straight answers. <laughs>
1: like, I
3: want you to tell me what is right and what is wrong. I want you to tell me what is ABC. The, yeah, what is the right way to decolonize and what is the wrong way to decolonize? And I can't give you that. You know, there's definitely more colonial ways of doing things and more decolonial ways of doing things. But the binary of good and bad—that is a religious, you know thing doctrine thing that we also need to get rid of um and and so once we dismantle that then we get to the the basis and the foundation of oh actually there is no good or bad there's just doing and not doing right or um causing less harm causing more harm right it's Mm -hmm. not you know we could consider causing more harm being bad and causing less harm being good but at the same time it's like it's impossible not to cause harm at all so you know it just it and so that level of nuance and complexity is very uncomfortable for people. People want that perfect answer. I want you to tell me how to do it and tell me how to do it correctly. And if I disagree with you, I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> right? And a lot of us subscribe yep, to that. Yep. A lot of us subscribe to that. So, yes, there, there's individualism on the toxic end of things. And there's this uh, level that we have subscribed to that says, you know, if we're doing things right, or if we're doing things wrong, we all should do the right thing. We all should do the good thing. We should, we yes. should all try to be good people, whatever that means, the, the morality complex. Right. So the, the thing that I want people to remember is that we all have had different experiences. So the way in which we get to this end road of decolonization, which really isn't an end road, it's just a continuous road, is going to look different for different people. So what aligns with me may not necessarily align with you, may not necessarily align with Tommy, may not necessarily align with Olivia. So it means that we're all going to get to we're all going to be at different points at many different times. Mm -hmm. And so in the decolonization process, those of us who want, for instance, uh, Puerto Rican sovereignty, we're all going to come to that point at different times with different strategies, with different complexities, with different nuances, with different biases. So does that mean that we shouldn't seek sovereignty and we shouldn't seek liberation? No, it just means that we're gonna be in multiple different communities at multiple different times who have different strategies, who have different approaches, who have different healing modalities, different healing tools, different ways of being that are gonna align with us at one point or another. And because we're all doing it together, that means all of us together will eventually get to that place where we feel, okay, I've landed.
2: And, and rooting into the decolonial strategies for being in conflict through that difference.
3: Yes, which is a conversation that mm-hmm. you and I have had multiple times. <laughs> and that's the part of it, right? A lot of people think, oh, it's only truly decolonial if everybody is on the same page, nobody disagrees, everyone's doing it perfectly, right? Like community is the be all end all without realizing again, different people are coming in with different biases, different traumas, different ways of being different experiences. Um, and there's inevitably going to be conflict and how Mm -hmm. we deal with that conflict is this road of causing more harm or causing less harm mm. but we're all as long as we stay on the train <laughs> we're eventually gonna get there right but a lot of people just jump off the train because they're like nope it's too uncomfortable to be in conflict with people i disagree with this person i disagree with that person so i'm no longer doing this thing and that's what's mental
2: and and i want to say like that's actually normal right that's our that's our our flight, uh, our fight, flight, freeze, fall responses yep. in action. And like, so when, you know, we weren't taught in school that we would be fighting against our bodies when we were learning about this stuff. Yeah. And so the embodied experience of creating a society in which we all can breathe, in which we all uh, are, are rooted into our. Inherent dignity and worth as human beings yeah. is, is going to expose those places we've been wounded right. um, by systems and structures. Yeah. And talking about that wounding, what this is all heavy work. So what sustains you? What yeah. sustains spirit for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially, I I I ask that question because I know, like, I I come from a Christian background, and I know that that's not your shared background. And so, what it actually is, yeah,
3: I was raised. Oh, okay.
2: okay. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, I said it wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, yeah, how 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 does that then even go a different direction? How does that being raised Christian now play into? um your journey of decolonization and feeding your spirit
3: yeah no it's interesting i think you know just on the journey of uh attempting to have some sort of connection to spirit i have looked towards like things that look very religious and perhaps Mm. have been very religious to you know try to get there so you know i was raised christian Um I studied Buddhism for a little while as a yoga teacher. I was um you know learning a lot of Hinduism by way of yoga, philosophy, um, you know, Taoism. I I've read the Tao. Um, so I really seeked a lot of different types of spiritual religions um in order you know because again it's the devil, you know if you don't like this devil, you go to another Mm -hmm. one (laughs) and so um but it all looks the same right it all feels very uh like doctrine right and so when i decided you know what that doesn't align with me i've tried multiple things but it's not what i'm looking for it doesn't align with me so being in a place now where i'm really going through a reclamation process meaning i'm really going deeper into Um, elemental spiritual practices that aren't tied to anything or any God or any gods Mm, Um,
2: say that. Yeah.
3: It's that, you know, I've always been attracted to water. What is that about? Right. So like getting closer rather than further away, what is water? (laughs) What is the element of water? Why does it feel so good? Why do I want to be close to it? How can I get even closer and really building that type of relationship with nature I tend to be more of a hermit, <laughs> I, like my, I like being cozy in my home, so I really have to push myself to go out into nature um, a lot of the time, but what is that about, right, like why do I feel so cozy at home, why do I not want to go outside more often, what am I afraid of, what is that about, right and so that's my spiritual practice now it's like very elemental back way way down to its roots um, in my reclamation process of my ancestry it's actually a very thaino practice which actually is part of my ancestry one of the three and and so that's very exciting it actually feels exciting to be learning about that stuff but also you know since i was a child i've always been you know an animal lover like put I if you if I had to be in a room full of people versus in a room full of animals, I'm going this way. Um, you know, I just I love animals. So I, I have a lot of them, as many as I can. have. <laughs> um, so I have my two dogs. I've got my two guinea pigs and I just love it. I love spending time with them. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk about meditation. And for a long time with my yoga practice, my meditation looked very similar to what you see on TV. It's, you know, your eyes closed, you're just kind of getting into it, right? You're getting into yourself. And I never quite understood why I couldn't really get too, too deep in that I, I'm a very anxious person. I, I, I move around, I fidget. Mm-hmm. It's very uncomfortable for me to just be in silence for a really long time. But what I've realized, um, especially since getting my guinea pigs, is I actually meditate with my animals. So I will like Mm. literally spend 30 minutes to an hour with my dog just cuddling, looking at her, you know, processing this life, right? Like that's my meditation practice. When I'm looking at my guinea pigs, I could stare at them for hours and that is my meditation practice. Mm. It just looks different than other people's. Um, And so I'm really learning to embrace that side of it and learning that it's okay sometimes (laughs) to want to disassociate from society and just be like, Nope, I'm spending time with my animals today. Like I can't, I'm not doing this today world. (laughs) I'm spending time at home with Mm -hmm. my guinea pigs, with my husband and my partner, you know, like, that's what my spiritual practice looks like these days. And, um, and I'm really learning to embrace that, like, uh, not looking outside of myself for anything um you know especially on the days and tommy and i have had these conversations privately about you know addiction and and what that looks like and feels like on a daily basis even if you're sober um those addictive tendencies still exist they're still there and so managing that in a way that is aligned with me feels even in the uncomfortableness feels more comfortable than trying to seek it outside of myself, which is not only uncomfortable, it is just draining. It's yeah. so draining. So I'm, I'm, mm. you know, for now, <laughs> I'm done with that, right? And and I've only been able to get there by allowing myself to get there, versus before I was just like, you know what? I gotta survive the day. Anything. Let's do Red Bull. Let's do vodka. Let's do weed. Let's do antidepressants, right? Anything just to survive the day. I can't handle it. Let's just do it. And I feel like I've gotten to a point where I've just allowed myself to sit in my discomfort and really just muddle in it (laughs) and meditate in there and realize that, you know what, this is a feeling that I need to be in for a little bit. And I'm, you know, the more I explore it, the more I'm able to to see how to get out of it.
4: What you said about animals, there's a time where, like, I would have been like, what? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but this is not that time. So um, I'm about to say the exact opposite. You know, it, it so resonated with me. Um, I think it was like three weeks ago. One of my good friends had just shared some information It was all factual, completely true. And it, it just so unmoored me. Sometimes too much truth. <laughs> Just makes my head hurt, and yeah. so I wrote this Facebook post that said, "So I went. I, I said my my friend sent me some information that was depressing AF. You know what the AF stood for? So I went for a walk and bonded with a horse. Actually, two horses. And yes. there's a time when I would have thought that was the most ludicrous thing, but I had this whole spiritual experience with these two horses, and I actually have video clip. I mean, this horse he." came up to the gate he's reaching over he's kissing me on the cheek and then oh. the other one comes up and is actually dipping his head under the gate to 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 draw me in oh. um and so now I want a horse, but uh, <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm oh, kidding. <laughs> oh, my husband is obsessed with horses, but unfortunately <laughs> my neighborhood does not allow that. But here's the thing, how, um, <laughs> when something is on your radar, you notice it. So I was two hours away, um, this day that I went walking and had my horse bonding experience. But now every time I get in my car, I'm like, oh my God, there are horse pastures, like, all out here in in this area that I live, I live in an area that I, I live in metro Atlanta, but it's very residential. And yeah. so there are several horse pastures. So I am seriously going to figure that out because you just had to be there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there was a fence and they were far behind the pasture. And so they had to gallop across. And I just really <laughs> felt like they were trying to talk to me. So that's what I thought <laughs> about when you talked about your your guinea pigs i was like i just had a horse bonding experience i totally resonate with what she's saying and
3: it's so true yes it's so true we actually um the guinea pig rescue where i got mine they also rescue other types of animals and horses Mm -hmm. are are one of them and recently and tommy knows about this one i i had a very rough experience with trying attempting to hold a uh a very large and popular white-led account on Instagram, accountable for their, you know, xenophobia, and um, and I was just knee deep in depression. I was totally like sinking, and mm. so we went to the guinea pig rescue just so I could, you know, have some time off. Um, I had already pre-scheduled it; like it was, it was the thing, it was my day. And actually, my husband, uh, we were touring, and we came over to the horses. And he just, again, just like you, was having a full moment with this one horse. And it, it looked like they were about to get married.
4: I <laughs> <laughs> have video evidence of mine. I mean, no. you know, I actually have video evidence of this horse leaning over, kissing my face. It oh. was just, it was just surreal. And I just felt so loved. Yeah, and you're you're just having this connection and this
3: moment, and it is completely silent. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to say anything. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to tell them where you work or how much money you're making or how many Instagram followers you've got. It is just you and the animal, just having a moment and a deep, deep connection, and it is beautiful. And I've always been that way. My mom used to joke around. When I was younger, we literally used to have arguments about how much time I would want to spend with my animals (laughs) versus how much time I would want to spend with my family because I've just always been drawn to animals. I don't have to prove anything to them.
1: You know, I'm
3: just there and they just love me for being there. And that's so Mm. beautiful. So and and it's the same way I feel about the ocean and water. You know, I'm just Mm. there. I don't have to prove anything to the ocean. I don't have to tell you, you know, anything. They don't even care about, you know, the worst thing that happened to me today. They're just happy I'm here. You know, the ocean is just happy that you're there having an experience. And that's so beautiful.
2: I will have to tell you one of the most beautiful things I've heard about water. But I'm going to say I'm not going to tell you on this podcast (laughs) because Eliana will be back. Oh. And (laughs) we're talking with Eliana and some other beautiful, beautiful people about opportunities for you all to connect, um, more personably in community with us. Mm -hmm. And so there'll be some behind the scenes conversations and some other fun stuff that we're going to co-create together and continue this work of being and, and, Mm. and, lifting up humanity. Um, so yeah. thank you so much for the joy yes. you thought today. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Let people know how they can be in relationship with you. Yes. These days.
3: Absolutely. So I have a Patreon that um, is, has been going on for a little while now. So it's a really great community there. Um, so it's patreon.com slash Constanza Eliana. And I am on Instagram. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, not for <laughs> too long. So do find me on there so you can figure out how to follow me other places. And yeah, I have uh, my website com, which is constantly going through changes and updates and all types of things. Um, I also have an activist apparel line on there. So you can wear your activism proudly with some shirts and mugs and
1: sweaters.
3: <laughs> yeah. So that's how you can stay stay in touch.
1: And all, we'll list all of that in the show notes as well. So everybody will have access to all those links. Yeah.
2: Mm, so good. This was so good. I always love talking to you. Know, and you too. Just never know where the conversation's gonna go. So.
3: I know. It's like I'm gonna take you all sorts of places.
2: We're <laughs> gonna go
1: all directions.
2: <laughs> all right. So next time, yo.
1: <laughs> yes. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. You can learn more about today's guests by going to permission We are also on all the social medias. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Permission to Be Podcast or Twitter at permission to underscore B. We would love to hear from you and let us know who you might want to have on. As our next guest, if you will leave us a rating and review in your review, you can put the name of people or persons who you think might be a great guest for the Permission to Be podcast. We hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? No, no, that was so. That was motorcycles racing down my street. because uh, I, I live like, in oh, the city. Somebody is no. blowing <laughs> no. some snots out. <laughs> that sounded <laughs> like you felt good. It was <laughs> like went <"Whoa, laughs>
3: <you're window laughs> <passages." laughs> It did did sound like somebody was just blowing their
1: nose. No. I've got four... There's a four-lane street in front of our house, and um, I don't know what it... I, we used to, back in the day, call them crotch rockets. They, yeah. they, there's no stoplights. and not so, back in the
3: day. It's still very much It's still there? Day. Okay.
1: <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, because I haven't been around. Um, so, but anyways. You so haven't been they, around the millennials and the Gen here.
4: <laughs> back in that day. I am the uh, senior citizen here. Yeah. Um, so I am neither a millennial <laughs> no, nor a Gen No. <laughs> uh,
1: but anyways, they race because there's a light that's one block from us, and then there's no light for probably a good solid half mile to a, a close to a mile. Oh. So, well, that's a daily annoyance. <laughs> yeah, it's normal. Yeah, I forget about it. Oh, uh, yeah. It's not like, you know, I'm like, oh, <laughs> you're like, what was that? I'm like, oh, it's just the motorcycle. The crotch rocketeers. <laughs> they're just they're going. <laughs> yes, Tommy, what would you like to say? There's so much in your face. So much. <laughs>
2: Nothing. I was just like crotch rocketeers. This sounds like a thought I would have in the shower like the other day when I was just thinking <laughs> about how like we should just retire the use of cockpit.
1: <laughs> yeah. i <laughs> to <So, laughs> water all over my computer. Is that what we're leading
4: with cock discussions? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Where did the name cockpit come from?
2: Oh, trust me, toxic masculinity.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Just like the dick spaceships.
2: <clears throat> hey, welcome permission to be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh... (laughs) All right, let's try that again. (laughs)